0: For many founders, being able to sell, to exit your company is the ultimate dream. But when you get there, how do you know what to do? How do you interact with the buyer? How do you make sure you're getting the most value that you deserve and you're not making any mistakes that are going to harm you? I talked to Lowell Rickliff. He's the managing partner at Traction Advising. And he walked us through exactly what to do in that scenario. In fact, he advises sellers of B2B SaaS companies all the time, shares with them exactly how they can set up their companies for success when it comes to exiting. This is going to walk you through that. He gives us a great structure for how to do it. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to Sastery in the Making, the podcast that features the people who made the software world what it is today and the leaders who are shaping the future of technology. Here's your host, Matt Wallach.
0: Yes, I am Matt Wallach. I am your host. This is Sastery in the Making, and I am super excited to have you here and delighted to have my special guest, Lowell Rickliff's. Lowell, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Super excited to have you here as well. Let me tell everybody about you, Lowell. Lowell is the founder and managing partner at Traction Advising. It's a premier boutique M&A firm focused on B2B SaaS companies between 5 and 20 million ARR. Really what he does, he helps founders find the right acquirer and negotiate the best deal. That is extremely important, and I can tell you, when I was going through that myself with my companies, it's very valuable to have somebody like Lowell on your side. He's also the Education Committee Chairman at Alliance of Angels and Board and CEO Advisor at Event Core, so he absolutely knows his stuff when it comes to SaaS companies and advising CEOs. So Lowell, once again, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, man. Yeah, this is great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, tell me what's going on with you lately over at Traction Advising and what's coming up for you guys?
1: Uh, Probably the biggest thing is a year ago, we added a a partner in in London, Uh, one of my favorite employees. I had a 25-year operating career and one of the employees that was near the top of the list of uh, high quality, high integrity execs I'd worked with. So, So he joined. It gives us some broader reach. Um, we closed the deal in June, uh, that'll be released, uh, today. There should be an announcement. We can talk more about it and, Beautiful. um, close the deal on the, uh, employee wellness company bought an employee engagement company. So tiny pulse was bought by Limeade last month. Um, got a med tech company we're working on. We've got two more, uh, in the works. So it's, it's busy out there and, uh, and we're having a lot of fun working with some good folks.
0: Sounds like a lot going on. A lot of irons in the fire for you.
1: That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Very, very cool. Well, a lot of our people listening to the show are founders and leaders in software companies, and they're growing, they're scaling. They, they feel like eventually there's going to be an exit. That's their goal. But can you give us an overview of what an M&A advisor means exactly, and and how do you help buyers and sellers of businesses make a deal?
1: Sure. Um, part of it is, it can be an expensive learning lesson to go it alone. Um, I was on the, the buying side, was part of acquiring about a dozen companies, and we bought companies with the benefit of a broker on the other side, and, and we bought companies sometimes without it. And uh, simple things like we'd ask for the cash on the balance sheet, if you don't have someone to say that that's not a part of the typical deal, we get the cash, and you may lose out on a million or a couple million bucks. Wow. But, but a lot of what we'll do is we'll help research the buyers. Typically, we'll find two to five to ten times the the, the potential buyers that someone that's been building the company thinks is out there. Um, we will help put together their their financials and then then the messaging. I mean, part of what makes us different, we sell a company much like we would sell a technology product. So it's less about... The traditional investment model where you collect a lot of information, you spam all of your contacts, see if there's interest and then run a structured process Um, that wouldn't work very well in your business. Um, I don't believe it works well for technology companies. So Mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time on the messaging. We put ourselves in the shoes of the buyer and try to understand why would someone actually buy this company? Like what would it do for their, their revenue growth, both short term, long term? Uh, what would the volume, what would the revenue look like at scale in a large organization? So we spent a lot of time understanding who the buyers are and then positioning the, the messaging. So both the SIP, the confidential information presentation, as well as the outreach message uh, to, to make sure that um, it aligns with what a buyer is looking for. And then there, there are hundreds of little things that come up along the way as well. Some are, some are personal. Do you want to stay with the company? You know, do you want us to, st- you know, we negotiate your non-compete. It's awkward if you say, I want to stick around, but then you're trying to say, I want a really broad, I want a really narrow non-compete. It's easy for us to do that on their behalf. Um, we could do the tough stuff so that the founder can remain, you know, the, the good person. Uh, we can ask for the, the tough things and they can be the, the classic good guy. Uh, we can negotiate for their compensation. We can negotiate for retention bonuses. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are in there. And when you've got a, a, a professional buyer, you' it's just unfair to not have a, a professional on your side uh, to kind of match with on the business side. Uh, on the on the contract side on the legal side, you want a good m and a advisor. so that's that's kind of at a high level. But, but a lot of it really is there are hundreds of small, Uh, I'll call them judgment decisions. You know where we become an advisor. Lowell, what would you what would you do here? What would you do there? And do you Mm -hmm. think I should share? Should I reach out here? They want to talk to our clients. Do you think we should at this point in the process? Well, it, it just depends. So yeah, we could talk a lot about
0: that. I mean, that's amazing. The fact that, you know, the buyers are trying to get as much as they can, they might see an opportunity for somebody who maybe doesn't understand what they're doing. Like you said, asking for the cash on the balance sheet, that could be a ton of money that you just give up. You're like, okay, yeah, that's part of it. I guess that's incredible. But I I, want to understand. So you were a buyer and now you kind of represent sellers, which, which side do you like more? How do you, how do you see that whole, you know, interaction playing out? What do you like?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I became experienced in this. I would say almost accidentally, just in the course of of running. Uh, worked for Rockwell, Fortune five hundred company, and then um, was COO of a publicly traded company, hundred twenty million in revenue, and then I was a co founder of a startup. Right, I mean, right on a napkin and uh, trying to get our first dollars in the door. But so I really, until it came time to sell the company that would co-found it, I'd really never given any thought to a career in M&A, but I really just looked back on, on the experiences I'd had with buying companies and the bankers that I'd worked with had, a you know, accounting and finance background. They didn't have a sales background. They, they weren't. And I just thought, you know, with an enterprise selling background, I just thought we could position this company better than others. And it turns out we were successful. We ran the process for another company. And we realized there was an opportunity out there to represent uh, founders. I do a lot of mentoring. Um, you know, it's like oxygen. It's like a drug working with startups. And so I I, I love to do it. And I, I do a lot of that actually globally, uh, less so over over COVID. But I enjoy the selling part. I, I work for the founders to try to help the founders and their investors. I mean, I understand what it's like to start a company. I know how hard it is and the sacrifices mm-hmm. that you make. Um, I know how much you appreciate the investors who wrote checks to you in the days when everyone was saying no, how important it is to, to get money back to them. So I love representing the sellers and both at a, at a personal professional level. And that's why we're hands-on. That's why we don't scale into a larger organization. We're very selective about which CEOs that we work with. We walk them through a very, well, arguably one of the most stressful processes they'll go through in their life. Um, and so we're, we're, uh, you know, careful about who we go through that with. But having said that, you asked a good question, and that I do have a lot of experience on the buying side, so I know why companies buy. I know, I know what the process looks like on the back end. I've sat in the in the meetings after the conversations with the seller, uh, where HR asks questions, where you know the CTO asks questions, where the board asks questions. So I understand what it's like to manage all those expectations to kind of get it across the finish line. The other thing is, uh, ironically, because I actually have. More experience on the buying side than many of the companies that buy our seller. So I clearly work wow. for the seller, but often the, the the buyer may have very little experience. They may have none. They may have bought one or two or three companies, um, and so often I'll I'll earn the trust of the sell the, the buyer. And again, even though I work for the seller, I'll I'll provide advice on you know I know you want to structure it this way because you think this makes sense, but a year into the deal you may want, you know, employee X, the CEO, you may realize he's really good at product development and you want to work on this new widget, but you've tied all of his compensation to the old widget and you're stuck because he's not going to want to work on that. He or she's not going to want to work on that. So um, so I spent a lot of time almost um, almost like an arbitrator sometimes negotiating things and trying trying to help each side when the tensions run high, understand the other side. If a, If a on the seller, if the seller is saying they want to look at our code, they're a competitor, I'm not comfortable. And I said, I understand that. Let's put together a structure so that they can't see it in a way that they can use it against you, but also understand mm-hmm. they're buying your IP. You wouldn't buy a company without looking at their IP either and spend all this money. Um, and the same thing on the on the for example, on the buyer side, you know, when they're saying, oh, I can they don't want us to look at their their code and say, Well, think about a big competitor buying you guys. You wouldn't want them to see your code either. And so usually they'll say, yeah, I guess it's a lot I spent a lot of time kind of reframing things when the tensions run high so people can can kind of find that they're they're at a gridlock of what each side wants and try to find that third way and a path forward. So, it's um, almost
0: like you're kind of playing mediator there, it seems like. It is. Yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly Very, what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, well, what are buyers looking for when they see a potential acquisition company and they're they're saying, okay, this is something we want to we want to pick up? What are buyers particularly looking for? What do they like seeing?
1: Well, it depends if it's a, if it's a strategic. Uh, usually, they'll know the the domain that you're in, and they'll know pretty quickly. Is you know, is it they want? Uh, are they looking for geographic expansion? Uh, we did that. I worked uh, for a company in Europe, and we bought some U.S. companies and mm. uh, looked at some things in Asia Pacific. So you're looking for a footprint uh, to become global. It might be a, a, a hole in your product line. Uh, we did a deal a couple of years ago where SmartSheet bought a company called Ten Thousand Feet, and Ten Thousand Feet was was the best in class at at a certain function. SmartSheet had had built it, but it, it wasn't great, and so it filled a product line, and then they could they could roll it out to all of their um, you know to a hundred times the the volume of clients, so they could they could justify that at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, private equity. Private equity buys platform companies. Private equity actually has $5.8 trillion uh, in revenue in private equity right now, which to put in perspective, that's about the GDP of Germany. So there's a tremendous amount of capital out there, and about 80% of that is deployed and is deployed into companies that are real companies that what we would call strategic. So many of the strategics that are buyers have PE backing. So they look a little bit like financial buyers. But the metrics they'll look at for SaaS companies in particular, they'll look at revenue. People want to know what's my company worth. So uh, less than a million, uh, it's, it's difficult to sell. It, it can be, but it's difficult. Uh, once you hit 5 million, you know, the 3, 4, five million, uh, you've got some scale. The revenue might be meaningful to a lot of companies and, and, and there's a real business there. Once you hit 10 million, uh, you're, you're big enough to be a platform. So people will buy you for the financial performance as not just an add-on to an existing platform. So revenue is mm-hmm. a big deal. And the multipliers, not only does the uh, the numerator get larger, but the multiplier actually gets higher as well. Um, they will look at profitability. Many people <clears throat> anecdotally will say profitability doesn't matter. And they'll point to an acquisition where a company had no profits. It doesn't always matter. But I will tell you the vast majority of the time, it does matter. Um, there are a lot of mm-hmm. very good companies with, with very good growth, but they're burning... Uh, you know, f- 50 to hundred percent of what the revenue number is. Uh, many strategic acquirers uh, have covenants to their bank on their debt and they can't take on that level. They don't want to hurt their own performance. So Interesting. Uh, you don't have to be super profitable, but I would argue that at least being breakeven is, is important because if you're not profitable, then the leap of faith that the acquirer has to take is that at scale, they won't just lose more, right? If I lose a million dollars a year at five times that revenue, I lose 5 million. Um, they, they know that it can be profitable. They look at growth. Yeah. Growth is one of them. So I, <clears throat> the simplest thing, I'll, I'll list about eight different things, but the two simplest would be growth and retention in SaaS. Mm. The reason Beautiful. people pay high multiples for SaaS companies is because it's repeatable revenue. If you've got high churn, it's not at some point. It's not really SaaS. It's not really long-term revenue. If, For sure. If a hundred percent churn in a year, all they're really doing is buying a one-year license. So, um, so that's a big deal. So growth is a big deal. If it's declining, it can be difficult to sell. I've heard the expression, you know, they don't want to catch a falling knife. Um, if it's flat, that's okay. There are a lot of value buyers out there, or it may be a good product fit. If you're in the zero to 20% range, I would say that's that's probably where the majority of companies fall. Um, mm-hmm. that's not a bad place to be, and there's interest. If you're in that 20 to 40 percent, they call it you know the rule of 40. If your growth percentage plus your EBITDA percentage is 40 or higher, it makes you extremely attractive yeah. <clears throat> to some of the <clears throat> highest performing private equity firms that, that buy companies. So the rule of 40 is is real and they talk about it all the time if you're in the 40 to 100% growth range you're extremely attractive to most companies
0: um, well, as as a as a sales coach teaching founders how to make their companies be <clears> exponential, <throat> I love hearing that because uh, we experienced that my companies. We had some serious growth numbers and we saw a lot of people coming our way wanting to be a part of it, uh, wanting to acquire us. And that's kind of what we're doing, helping other companies get to that level to make sure that they're accelerating at a very fast pace. But I love that rule of 40. So if you can get to that and start seeing 40% plus, then it sounds like you're going to have a lot of, suitors?
1: A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would. Yeah. That's your, your core
1: business. If you can get people to 40% or higher, it puts them in a pretty elite category. Um, and, and a lot of people will, um, will pay attention and, and will potentially pay the the double digit multiples for the
0: companies. Okay. Beautiful. So. So kind of similar to that, how can software company leaders set up their businesses to look great to potential buyers? I mean, you mentioned the profitability. We used to ru- try and run break even early to make sure we put everything back into the company to fuel growth. But is it one of these scenarios where as you start to get close to acquisition, you kind of pull it back and say, okay, let's make sure we show some profits for a while?
1: Well, it depends. I would say if you're, if you're burning heavily, look at... Uh, <clears throat> one of the things I've seen is companies that are, are well-capitalized often get very comfortable with the mindset of, of we burn cash, that's just just who we are, and um, and sometimes that money isn't necessarily being well spent. I mean, one mm-hmm. way I, I always tell people look at it like if this was your money, if you were spending this money, would you spend it on that? So the extent that you can minimize expenses that don't have a lot of um, short-term gain, I, I would focus on that. So uh, you don't want to you don't want to kill the future, but you don't want to spend a lot of money on things that that won't show a return for three or four years because that Mm -hmm. that will hurt you in the short term um also i i would look at some of the metrics i mean look at you know logo churn and net revenue retention are two of the metrics that buyers look look very very closely at if you look at the publicly traded companies uh they're very they're usually very sophisticated about how they measure churn when you're a startup You'll take anyone and everyone. I mean, who cares? Sign up. If they leave, it doesn't matter. They paid for a while. You need the cash, right? You're 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 hungry, Um, but when you're selling a company, it 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 does matter. So get a little bit smarter about uh, someone who's a trial. If they don't truly sign up for a recurring long term subscription, I would argue, uh, you know, you should work with your your attorney to make sure you get it, you know, legally correct. But I would argue that that's not really. a subscriber. So that shouldn't count against your churn number. So, or change the way that you onboard people so that they get a chance. Maybe they pay short-term monthly and it rolls into an annual contract um, or there's a free trial, but those that bounce before their long-term kick them out. And then net revenue retention. I find... Pricing is uh, uh is all over the board, right? For most companies, there's not a lot of sophistication mm-hmm. that's behind it, right? It's, it's a little bit of you know we'll we'll try this and see what people will pay for, and most companies are are cautious about doing a a price increase, but net net revenue retention really measures how much your existing client base grows. A simple thing you can do is uh, you know three, four, five, six, seven, ten percent price increase across the board. Bumps your net revenue retention metrics by three, four, five, seven, ten percent. And most clients, if they like your product, they won't they won't balk at it. And if they do, mm-hmm. you can also <clears throat> you can always back down individually with them. But yep. um, clean financials. Make sure you're properly accounting for all of your expenses, all of your revenue, um, and then IP confidentiality agreements. I, I can't I can't express enough how important it is. You're starting a company. It's three people in a kitchen again around a napkin. If someone's writing code <clears throat> for three months before you have a real company and they didn't sign an ip agreement when you're selling the company i can almost guarantee they're, they're gonna find out or you're gonna have to disclose it and if one of those three people left on um less than friendly terms and eight years later you have to call them to get them to sign that because you've got a transaction they now have leverage um it's a it's an awkward situation it's pretty common so i encourage people uh, just get it buttoned up now. Do it yourself or have someone comb through. If they're missing, reach out when there's not a transaction pending and get those things signed or at least identify who's out there and, and what that that risk is. So. Wow,
0: that's that's pretty incredible that uh, you'd have to maybe uh, go back and get that IP agreement. What other mistakes do software leaders make when they're trying to sell their businesses, Lowell? Um, you know... It, it depends. I mean, one
1: is if they try to go it alone, I think the biggest one I see, and I, I try to vet for this, is um, unrealistic expectations. I've talked to companies before where um, I, I talked to a lot of different different companies at different stages, and they'll say, well, you know, we're, we'll, we'll do a million bucks in revenue this year and we're growing 10%. It's like, well, what, what would you value it at? And they'll say, well, I'd take 50 million. And I'm thinking, okay, I mean, maybe someone would pay that, but, but they're they're probably not. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I talked to probably a thousand, I have a thousand conversations a year with buyers. I know what these people will pay. Um, so that's a bit unrealistic. I mean, you, it, you need to be a little bit dialed in, um, um, you know, t- to reality on that part. The other thing is, <clears throat> is, is clarity of all of your numbers, all the numbers that you share, they shouldn't change. So whether they're your financials, what's your revenue, if it's your churn, if it's your profitability, most small SaaS companies have cash financials. They don't do accrual. Um, that's okay. The buyer is going to do what they call quality of earnings. So they'll, they'll create accrual finances. Uh, you don't want to find mistakes because um, it's better to take the time up front to get it right than it is to roll it out and then later um, find find problems in it. Um, and then the other thing is okay. just um, I encourage founders to just just be yourself. Don't try to be a company. Don't try to be something that you're not. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just talk about who you are. We'll help position how it can look as a part of the the, the broader thing, but don't uh, don't exaggerate, don't oversell, uh, be factual. Because some of that stuff can come back to bite you. It's one thing to talk about forward looking because no one knows what will happen in the future, but you want to be factual about you know where the, the business is today.
0: Yeah, that's super smart advice. What do you say to entrepreneurs who ask when it's a good time to sell their business? And they say, hey, when should I do it? Should I do it here? Should I do it here? What, what do you tell them?
1: You know what? It's a good question and there's no, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, Mm. one of the things I try to find out is why do you want to sell? Like, where do you, where are you right now? Are you burned out? You know, you're seven years in, I talked to a lot of people that are in that five to 10 year range. They thought it'd be a billion dollar company. Um, it's linear growth. It's not the hockey stick growth. Um, and they know what the future looks like and they, they don't want to do it anymore and that's fine, but it's a B2B business. They have real clients. They solve real problems. Um, th- th- that's the, what the majority of the companies that we work, that, 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 they look like, which is, which is fantastic. Um, but it's like, what, what do you want to, then what do you want to do with it? You know, and, 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 what do you want for it? And what's your belief in, in the macro level economics? Because if you believe, if you look in the mirror and you believe that next year, your business will be double what it is this year, um, your company will probably be worth double if your revenue is double. So um, then, then ride it out. But if, if your honest conversation with yourself is, I don't know and I have huge doubts. Um, I've been at this for 10 years. I don't have any money. I've got kids that need to go to college. My personal balance sheet is low. I've got everything tied up in the value of this company. Um, that's one reason you might want to sell. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be binary. It doesn't have to be cash out or stay in. Uh, private equity will often want you to roll over 10 to 40%. So you can take 60% Say the company's worth 20 million. You could take 60% off the table. It's 12 million. You can roll over 40%. I would tell you most of the people I work with that take a second bite at the apple make far more on the second exit than the first Mm -hmm. exit. PE comes in, they come in their professional resources and the capital. They may acquire some other companies. And then five years later, the company sells for five to 10 times the value and they, they get enormous exits. Um, so that's one way to hedge your bets. You can stay in, but you can take some money off the table. Um, and then part of it really is, you know, multiples are high right now, higher than they've ever been for, for companies. Now, I said that a year ago. there, And I, and I said, said the same thing then. Will they be as high or higher next year? Well, they are. Now, I say the same thing. Will they be as high or higher next year? Um, they, they could be, but at some point, when you're at an all-time high, you look at the stock market, right? You got record multiples on stocks. Is it likely to go up? I don't know. I'm not an expert on that, but I, I, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk in that. So it just depends on your own personal risk. Um, macroeconomics, right? I mean, uh, the, the the dot bomb in 2000, the financial crisis 2008. No one really saw those coming. You know, things were great, multiples were high. A week later, uh, you couldn't give things away, right? So. Mm-hmm. How would you feel if that happened? So there's no right or wrong answer. Part of it's like teasing out people like, what are your priorities? What are your interests? Um, or I even my my wife has this strategy. She called her regrets theory. What would you regret more? Selling your company and finding out it was more valuable later or not selling it and thinking and a year later, the bottom falls out and, and you say, I should have sold it. Which, which of those scenarios can, which of those downsides can you live with the most? And often that helps people make the decision. They say, I can't live with that. I can live with this. And it's like, okay. To move forward.
0: That's amazing, super fantastic advice. What other advice would you give to software leaders who are now just starting out? What can they do in the early stages to kind of prepare their company for a future acquisition?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's hard to build a business, right? It's hard to start it and raise money. But like I said, IP confidentiality, I, I would get that started right from the start. And that's, that's pretty easy, you know, make sure your financials are in order from the start. And I would, but I would take some time to look at the industry and who you think the potential acquirers would be. And then through the normal course of business, try to meet those people. Uh, if you're at a conference um, or if you want to send an email, uh, try to get to know the CEO. You don't necessarily have to meet Corp Dev, but the CEO or VP of product, or try to make them a customer. Uh, acquiring a company is a little bit like, Getting married, and and it helps if you've been dating for a while first. So if the if you've if they've been a client for two years, and I go in at the CEO or corp dev level uh, to sell the company, and they can reach internally and say, "We're, we're what do you think of this company?" And they say, "This is fantastic. We've been working with these folks for years." That helps a lot. It, it helps to jumpstart mm-hmm. the process. So I wouldn't spend an inordinate amount of time, but I would spend some time. Uh, if not weekly, on a monthly basis, thinking about who might acquire you and what kind of relationship would be desirable. It doesn't mean you should talk to them about, I'd like you to buy us one day, but it'd be good to do business with them. It'd be good to just know, get on, be on the radar of of who they are. Even if it's LinkedIn, the CEO, reach out and connect with them, send a short message. Uh, It's a tiny little plug, right? Like inception, you can plant the seed of who they are, you're on their radar. You're not a complete stranger if I knock on their door, um, and mm-hmm. say, hey, we've got a, a great company that we think would be a good fit for you.
0: Super good advice. Just make sure you build your network early. Make sure you connect with the powers that be. I love it. Well, well, Lowell, this is fantastic. This was a lot of great information that you shared. I want to know how shall our audience learn more about you? Where can they find you?
1: Um, I'm, I try to LinkedIn is kind of my go-to. So, uh, you know, just search uh, kind of a unique name, Lowell Rickliff's on, on LinkedIn. So uh, there's only one there. You can email me directly at at tractionadvising.com and then uh, our website as well. You can learn more, uh, www.tractionadvising.com.
0: Okay, perfect. And we'll put all of that into the show notes. If you're listening on the podcast, it's going to also be in the YouTube description if you're here watching. But Lowell, this was awesome. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. This was fun. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. Make sure you're subscribing, hit that button so you can subscribe and get notified about new episodes as they come out. You do not want to miss other creators and innovators like Lowell sharing their best tips and tricks for you. So thank you very much for coming and we will see you next time. Take care.